So good to have everyone here this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Titus, Titus chapter 2. We are going through uh, a series in Titus, uh, an expository series, verse by verse, line by line, through the book of Titus. And we find ourselves in Titus 2, verse um, 1 through 10 this morning is where we will be. And this morning's passage seems so basic. It seems like we shouldn't even have to preach it. We just need to read it, and then that would be good. But yet God's Word says that all of God's Word is profitable. And even though these ones that seem so simple and so applicable are so easy to forget and not to apply to our lives. But before we go any further, let's just remind ourselves where we are, where Crete was. Crete's an island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's part of the Roman Empire. We don't know exactly how the gospel got there, how the church was established in Crete, but most likely there was, we know that there was Cretans in Jerusalem the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church in Acts chapter 2. And so most commentators would believe and Bible theologians would believe that probably then though some of those Cretans went back to the island of Crete, took the gospel, evangelized, and the church was established. But it was a messy church, unlike almost every other church. Well, honestly, like every other church, like every other church is messy, right? Now, there's churches that act like they're not messy, but they're messy, right? It's, like, it's just, if they don't say they're messy, it's just under the rug, behind the curtain, because we're fallen people, right? And so churches, because as long as there's people, church will be messy. And so Crete, the church was a mess. Paul sent him there to put things, what remained in order to establish elders, pastors in every church or every town, in and on the island of Crete. Now, Paul, last week we saw that he was identifying troublemakers, that there are troublemakers in the church, and there always is. There's false teachers in the church always who stir up trouble, and there are those who lean towards legalism, and then there's who, those who lean towards licentiousness. There's either one, he, and, but today he begins to make the shift and connects that our beliefs and behavior must line up. He's going to tell Paul, or he's going to tell, Paul's going to tell Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he's going to show that, that our beliefs and our behavior should be in line with one another. And it's so simple, but that your beliefs should match your behavior. Now he tells Titus here today in Titus 2.1 to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, when I, I got to be honest this week, as I was studying this, teach, teach. Just several moments, I had these memories of me trying to stay awake in principles of technology in my ninth grade year. Anybody else ever have to deal with that? How many of you had Mr. Hessert? Yes, yes. I couldn't stay awake. So one day, it was during wrestling season, and I was um, losing a fair amount of weight, and so, you know, you get sleepy. And so, like, if you fell asleep in his class, he made you stand up. I kid you not, you can fall asleep standing up. Because I fell asleep and crashed and burned, and he just told me to sit down and sleep. It's not worth it. I hope I don't bore any of you that much this morning. Mr. Hessert, if you're here, I'm sorry. I'm sure he's not. I mean, you never know. He could be. But he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
Now, this accords, what does it mean to accord? It means to line up. Like, it should teach behavior, actions that are in accord, that line up with sound doctrine and teach that. Now, what does it mean to be sound doctrine? Accurate, true, correct. What is it? Doctrine, the right content, truth and instruction from an authoritative source. In this context, the authoritative source is God's word. Teach with authority from God's word, what accords with sound doctrine. So that should change our behavior, character, behavior, conduct, all of these things we're going to see. Teach them. It reminds me of the Great Commission where Jesus said to us in the mission of the church, go, make disciples of all mankind, of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to what? Observe everything that I've commanded you. It's the same thing. Teach in what accords with sound doctrine. Teach them to observe what sound doctrine looks like. If you believe this, then you must behave this way. This is what he's really driving at. You must conform one's actions to comply with what you believe. See, that's what God has predestined to do in our lives, Romans 8, 29. For God has predestined us, us to be conformed, conformed to the image of Christ God's Son. God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of God's Son. That's what he wants to do in our lives. This is called something called progressive sanctification. Now, it all starts with justification, okay? Justification is at the moment of salvation. It's a big theological word, but it's really easy to understand. Justification, at the moment of salvation, every person who puts their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ is at that moment justified. It's a legal term declared that they're free from the penalty of their sin. And a person who's been a Christian for five minutes or a person who's been a Christian for 50 years are all equally justified. At that moment, freed from the penalty of their sin, justified. But then God begins this work of sanctification. It's progressive progressively being conformed to the image of Christ God's Son. This is a work that never ends in our lives as we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And, and if you're like me, it's like you, you, you're not where you want to be, but you're also not where you used to be, right? Perfectly no, but increasingly yes. And this is takes something called the divine human cooperative. God is working in your life. But you must renew your, like Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, the renewal of your mind. You must renew your mind. You have to put God's word in. You must take control of your thoughts. You must renew your mind. God is progressively sanctifying you. It's a divine human cooperative. God is doing things in your life. And you must discipline yourselves in the truth of God's word to be conformed to the image of God, to walk in accordance with sound doctrine, that your behavior matches your belief. And Paul's telling Titus to teach that. So let's read Titus 2, 1 through 10 this morning, and then we'll get to our outline. And he says to Titus, but it's for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, 
not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that the opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that, every, that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, I'm going to admit there's some very, in our culture, there's some controversial things that I just read in there, some things that culture pushes back to, and some things that sometimes people react to like a cat to water. Now, I've never thrown in a cat in water, so I don't really know what that means. Come on, how many don't believe me? But, so, but culture, like when it says wives, submit to your husbands or be subject, like culture immediately. So I would just say to you this morning, I'm just a messenger. But I believe God's word is right and true. And there's a reason he says these things. So please just hear me out to the end this morning. This is an extremely simple but applicable passage. Point number one, men commit to godly character. Men commit to godly character. Now, guys or women, uh, every principle that we're going to talk about here to men, to women, to employees, to Christians, it, it applies to all of us. But Paul was speaking, knows that we are, that men and women are more vulnerable to certain vices. And so he says, older men, now, all right, so let's get that out of the way. Older men, what does that mean? So I had a birthday this week. I'm 52 now. Um, according to most theologians, I would be classified as an older man. I know I hate it. All the young people shaking their head like, yep, you're an old dude. So most guys say like in those times, they would have said if you were 40 years of age and above, you were older. Ugh. So there I am, 52. Somebody asked me, like, what did you get for your birthday in between services? I was told yesterday that I'm going to get to jump out of an airplane for my birthday. So, so that's what I got for my birthday. So I'm going to preach till I jump out of a plane, and hopefully I'll still preach after that. But <laughs> Older men are to be sober-minded. Now, this is an idea, something that we've seen before. He said earlier that elders are to be um, not, uh, they're not to be given to wine or to, um, they should not be drunks, they should not be, um, so it's just the same thing, sober-minded. This is saying that as Christians, our character, this is saying that we shouldn't be drunkards, that we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't be into, um, we should just be restrained and temperate in our use of those things. This is certainly anti-drunkenness. But all of this that he's going to talk about here is saying that our beliefs and our behavior must line up. So men, be committed to godly character. Be sober-minded. The next thing it says is be dignified. Be dignified. Be sober-minded. Be dignified. Now, what does it mean to be dignified? I know my wife thought when she married me that I would suddenly become dignified, that I would stop like, 
spinning my tires and doing stuff like that. And I'm 52. And yesterday, my daughter was with me, and we were in Williamsport, and it was snowing. And the roads were a lot of fun. I mean, you can't waste that opportunity, right? Right? I mean, right? Come on, guys. Don't leave me up here, right? You don't waste that. And so, like, we pulled out from this one road, and I drifted a little bit. And she's like, Dad, you know, you're going to wreck. And I'm like, no, I got out of control. She's like, no, you didn't. You almost hit the guardrail. I was like, no, I was that far away. It's all fine. It's totally fine, right? Like, I, my wife, like, she's been married to me now for over 30 years. Like, mo- like she just doesn't even react anymore. She just, just sits over there and just like, yeah, just. And some of you guys are like, I wish my wife, like, I see you guys looking at your wives, like, see, just relax, like, but dignified. <laughs> so maybe I'm not dignified because I like to slide around in the snow. But be dignified. Uh, dignified, what does that mean? It means to um, behave in a way that is honorable and respectable. <laughs> Apparently that's subjective. <laughs> this is a person that when they speak, people listen. There are people that I know that they don't speak a lot, but when they speak, you're like, you want to hear what they have to say because they have something to say. They're dignified. They're poised. They're respectable. Some translations would say instead of dignified here, it says temperate. Just the idea of just being clear-headed and self-controlled. That brings us to our next thing. It says that they are to be self-controlled. Now, I would just submit to you that the idea of being self-controlled is the overarching emphasis of this entire passage. It's the overarching emphasis. He's going to... Older men should be self-controlled. He's going to say that women should be self-controlled. He's going to say that younger men should be self-controlled. This is a supernatural fruit of the Spirit. Now, you can discipline yourself in your flesh because even non-Christians can be disciplined, self-controlled. But what he's talking about here is something even greater than that because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, and what? Self-control, self-control. A sign of a Spirit-filled believer is that they have control over themselves. Control over what? Your emotions. Your emotions. Control of your emotions. You can control your emotions and feelings. It's not wrong to have emotions. It's not wrong to have feelings. It's not wrong to express them. But you can control them. It's fruit of the Spirit. Self-control. You can control your thoughts. It's a big one. Take every thought captive, 2 Corinthians, I believe it is 10, to the obedience of Christ. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Self-controlled people can control their thinking. Spirit-filled. Men, be committed to godly character. Part of being, having godly character is your self-control. That means you have self-control over your mind. Because as you think, you feel. And as you feel, you what? You act. Think, feel, act. Think. You're, if you're like, well, my actions are terrible, it's because you're thinking poorly. Take control. This is so practical. Self-control over your emotions, your thoughts, your mind, your body. This would certainly be talking about having control over your sexuality, over food. Certainly food, certainly all of those things. Your desires. Multiple commentators, and I just like, I'm not going to say that, but I'm going to because multiple commentators. It means having control over your sleep patterns. I, I'm amazed how many people have no control over that. Like, like you will not be a, fu- like, this seems like, well, are you getting this from the Bible? Like, it says self-controlled. Now I get the privilege of just saying, going where, no, I don't. I don't get the privilege of going wherever I want. But here's the thing. Like, as Americans, so many people just don't even have control over those things. And you will not 
bear fruit for the glory of God in his kingdom. Self-control is a gift of the spirit. You know, one of the things I think happens often, because he's talking here to older men, now, and these truths apply to all people, but I think sometimes when people, men and women, when they get to kind of that retirement age, they raise their kids, the kids are out of the house, they're empty nesters, they feel like they've done their time and they just kind of check out in the church. I would submit to you that if you're of retirement age, and you know, can I just say this as well? The Bible doesn't even know anything of retirement. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's not wrong, but the Bible doesn't know anything of retirement. And so I don't, like, we don't retire from ministry, from doing the work of the church. And those people, when they retire, they often have the greatest margin, the greatest amount of money, the greatest amount of time. Some of you are like, no, I don't. I'm just on Social Security. Well, like, you still have time. <laughs> and like, use it for the kingdom, for the glory of God. Self-control over your time. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says that, that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are to honor the Lord with our bodies. And he was talking about sexual purity there. Paul was in 1 Corinthians 6. Self-control, 1 Timothy 4, 7. Train yourself for godliness. You will not be a self-controlled person if you don't train yourself. Spiritual disciplines. Must be committed, self-controlled, staying Staying away from spiritual laziness. Self, like, I, I talked about this last week. There's so many people, and I would submit more men often than women in the church who are spiritually lazy. Self-control. Committed to spiritual disciplines. Time in the Word. Time in prayer. Leading your family. Spending time on your knees for your family. He goes on in verse 2, and he says, sound in the faith. That means they know the Word of God. Older men know the Word of God. You're not going to know it if you're not in it. Sound in the faith. What does it mean to be sound? It's accurate. It's right. Older men should be sound in the faith. The older you are, the more you should know of God's word. The more you should be able to apply God's word to your life and to situations. Older men should be sound in the faith. They should know what they believe. And then he goes on and he says, and they should be in, they should sound in the faith and in love. Now this, where he says sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness, it's kind of like one idea. They should be sound in faith. They should be sound in love. In love with God, in love with their family, in love with humanity, with the church. Older men should be known for that. But isn't it interesting? It seems like when older people get older, they just get grumpier. You know that, right? It's like the old person is down the street. It's like, oh, stay away from there because they're old and grumpy. Like, what happened? I mean, somebody, like, whew, there's some mornings where your filter catches stuff just in the nick of time. And you realize you almost said something that you shouldn't have. And now you're all wondering what I thought, aren't you? <laughs> and you're surmising. You're thinking. I didn't think what you think I'm thinking. Sound in love. Sound in, 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 in steadfastness. Men committed to godly character, steadfastness. What is it? To finish. You finish. You stick with it. You're a person of your word. You, you finish what you start. And so often, people start the Christian walk like a firecracker. It's like it just, they take off a flash in the pan. But the Christian walk, it's a walk. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. I don't care how you start. How do you finish? That's what matters. Steadfast. They're steadfast. They're steady. Part of this being steadfast you know what you're going to get when you get, get around them. Do you, do you ever get around people, like, you know, one day they're five, the next day they're ten? You just don't know what you're going to get? That's kind of, those people are hard to be around. But the people who are just always a seven or always a six, they're just steadfast. You just know what you're going to get. 
be that kind of person. Men committed to godly character. And then he goes on and he talks in verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be what? Self-controlled. Younger men be self-controlled. It's this idea again. He, he, self-controlled. Certainly it would be talking about their sexuality and their sexual urges. Certainly that. Self-controlled. I would submit to you though that our culture and society, and I want to say this graciously as I can, but we are doing a poor job of raising young men to be men. And all the young ladies should say amen. We're doing a poor job of raising men. It's not culture and society's fault. It's family's fault. It's father's fault. It's, it's, it's men. Like they, they need to grow up and be men. I told my boys when they were young that they get two years or so after they graduate and they got to be out of the house. Like, figure it out. Figure it out. You're, you got to be a man. I told my daughters they get a lot more time. They're girls. They get to stay home. And I, I, right? That's like, but men, like, now, and I'm not saying you have to do it like me. It's okay. If, like, like, but they have to have some, like, grow up. Be men. I, I'm amazed at the amount of time young men spend on technology, like, playing, like, I, I mean, do stuff that develops you as a man. Like, get a wife, get married, have babies. Bible says be fruitful and multiply, but you got to get married first. Amen? Amen? It's super simple. Just follow God's word. Find a wife, marry her, raise babies, train them up in the way the Lord would have them go. It's the first, like, it's the first commandment to man. Be fruitful and multiply. But grow up. Young men, be self-controlled. I'll get off that one now. He goes on, and down in verse 7, he says, he says to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Men, commit to godly character. Number two, women, commit to godly behavior. Commit to godly behavior. Verse 3, older women, again, let's just say 40 and up, Likewise, there to be reverent, and there's a word in behavior, reverent behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. There's that whole alcoholic thing again. They're to teach what is good. There's teaching again. And so train the young women to love their husbands, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kindness and submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Women commit to godly behavior. Now, he says, older women, likewise, likewise, so that would mean he's connecting everything he just said. To what he's about to say. So likewise, women, here's some things I have to say to you. Everything I just said, plus this, are to be reverent in their behavior. Reverent just means holy. Just be holy in your behavior. That was certainly talking about modesty. Um, it was talking about um, sexual purity, sexual conduct, all those things. Um, women, um, it says, not slanders. Now, he, he obviously he's addressing, he's going to address two vices. Um, alcohol. And slander that was obviously a problem in the church then. And I would certainly say slander is a problem in the church today. And slander divides, it destroys families, churches, marriages, communities. And I would just say in humble graciousness, as a pastor, 
I have seen it destroy significant works. And I've seen where it's often got its start with women. Because it's a greater propensity. Like men have greater sin tendencies. That's why God had to tell us to love our wives. Because we have a tendency to be unloving. And so he's speaking to the ladies here and he says, like, not slanders. Listen, if you're not part of the problem or part of the solution, you have no business talking about it. If we, and, and you know, have you ever been around a person who's just really good at asking questions to pull things out? Get away from those people. They, they, they ask, it seems really wise and really concerning, but it's not. It's sneaky. To extract information. The Bible is so clear when it speaks against gossip and slander. So clear. They should not be slanders. Reverent, not slanders, not backbiting. Not listening or spreading gossip. Gossip. They shouldn't be slaves to wine. That's self-explanatory. Verse 3, at the end of it, he says, the older should teach the younger. This is an idea. This is one of the most powerful forces in the church today. Older people teaching younger people. Older people teaching younger people. But the problem is, so often, we draw up lines over generations. The greatest generation, the boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z. And we don't interact but the last thing a bunch of millennials need to be is with a bunch of millennials. The last thing a bunch of boomers need to be is with a bunch of boomers. We need each other. A healthy family has what? Babies? Toddlers? Tweens? Teens? Young adults? Married? Grandparents? Aunts and uncles? That's what a healthy family is. A church that's healthy should be full of children and full of senior citizens. But so often churches don't, they don't, they don't bridge the gap. It's young ones over here and old ones over here. That's not a healthy church at all. And the majority of churches in America, the average median age is like 70 years old or something like that. And they don't even realize that they're just dead. No, I mean, 70, you're not dead. I'm not saying that. See what I'm saying, though? There's no kids there. Like, where's... But here's the problem. When you get to be my age and older, we need to begin to leave go of our preferences are sacred cows for the sake of the younger generation. It's not about us. And we make it about our preferences, our style, what we like. It's unimportant. We talk about contextualizing. Paul said to the Jew become like the Jew, to the Gentile like the Gentile. We have to contextualize to our culture and to the younger generation. But when I say that, some of you immediately think, oh, he's going to compromise the gospel. No. Of course not. The word of God stands. It's the same today, tomorrow, forever. But we just change our methodology. And when churches aren't willing to do that, they age out. The older must teach the younger. Here's the other benefit of this. You know, do you ever hear a young person say, oh, I'm just going to learn it on my own? <laughs> well, I'm going to step back and watch. You fool. Like, why wouldn't you want an older person to pay your dumb tax? Does that make sense? Like, ask older people stuff. Let them pay your dumb tax. Like, because like you're going to pay it or else you learn from someone else who paid it. Like, that's not a good idea. I wouldn't do that. And, like, I can look around and there's plenty of us older people have paid a lot of dumb tax, right? Like, we want to share wisdom. Like, don't do that. It's not going to go well. 
And so what he's saying here is some of you younger couples, like maybe you should find an older couple to mentor you, to speak into your marriage, to speak into how you raise your children. The older should train the younger one. Look at this. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Do you know that apparently Paul thought that the women actually needed trained to love their husbands and their children? Do you think Paul knew what he was talking about? I think he did. I think he did. So I would submit to you that probably the same thing needs to happen today. But the problem is women think they're the relational experts. Now, here's the thing. Women are more relational than men, far more relational than men. My wife picks up on social cues that I just completely miss. They are more relational, but that doesn't mean they're relational experts. And so sometimes, now, Scripture interprets Scripture, right? So this also means, I, I would submit to you that men, we need to learn how to love our wives. That's why Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, because he knows that we don't know how to do it very well. But here, he's saying that older women should train the younger women how to love their husbands. Now, this love here is phileo. It's brotherly. It, it's also kind of the idea of agape. It's, a, it's an affectionate love. It, it's not talking about um, sex or sexuality, although it would certainly imply that. Um, but, but there should be companionship. It, it has the idea that the husbands and wives should be pulling in the same direction. Because a house divided against itself can what? Cannot stand. And so Paul's like, sometimes the older women need to come alongside of younger women. Sometimes older men need to come alongside of younger men and teach them how to love and to serve and to get on the same page. One of the things that my wife and I had to tell each other early on in our marriage is we're not in competition. We're on the same team. We're trying to accomplish the same thing. But how many of you who are married for any length of time realize that often you feel like you're at odds with each other when really you should be pulling in the same direction? And sometimes you need an older person to come alongside of you and just say, you're making too big a deal out of nothing. The majority of the time when you get into Christian counseling, marriage counseling, the thing that, like, a friend of mine, Dominic Kirk, said the majority of people don't have marriage problems. They just have personal problems that show up on the playing field of what? Marriage. And when there's two mature people who, above all, put on love, there's usually isn't marriage issues. It's when we become consumed with ourselves, we become selfish, prideful, that there's conflict. And so when you sit down with a couple and you hear what they're fighting over, you're like, what? I mean, listen to yourself. Yeah, like, and when they hear themselves, they realize it actually is sort of silly. Older women should teach the younger women to love their wives, or to love their, oh my, I'm not gender confused, I promise. And so train the young women to love their husbands and their children. Part of this loving their children would be to train them to discipline them. And I believe this is something that younger women often struggle with, disciplining their children. Scripture says, train up a child in the way he should go, and he is old, he would not depart from it. Now, this training, that's not a promise, that's a probable. But there must be training and discipline. And oftentimes, I, will find, I found that there's conflict between a husband and wife over how you would discipline your children. And this is why an older person must often come alongside and help them and learn. Scripture says this in Proverbs, Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but whoever loves him is diligent to discipline him. Sometimes young mothers falsely think that they love their child too much to discipline them. 
But Solomon just said, if you fail to discipline them, you actually hate them. It's not a sign of your love for them. It's a sign of your hatred of them. I'm just going to press this a little bit further. I would also submit to you that if you bought into what culture says, that you can never spank a child, you don't understand what Scripture says. That's another message for another week. But older women should help the younger women. It says that they should be pure. They would also be talking about their, their modesty and their sexuality, working at home, working at home. Now, it doesn't mean that a woman can't work outside the home. I believe it's God's best if, if, a, if a woman can be with her children the majority of the time. But here's what it means, that the home should be the woman's first priority. Like, I think that's what it means. So home should be the woman's. That doesn't mean she can't work outside of the home. It doesn't mean she can't have other sources of income or that she shouldn't. And I know every family's in a different place and makes a different decision. But here's the reality. The woman often sets the tone of the home, right? You know the country song? Mom ain't happy. Ain't nobody happy. So daddy, never mind. They should be kind. Kindness is a fruit of the spirit and submissive to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be reviled. Do you know that? Often women need taught to be submissive to their husbands. And some of you are like, well, I don't like that. Well, here's the thing. In everything that God has created, he has created authority and structure. Within the Godhead, the Trinity, God the Father is over God the Son. The Son is submitted to the Father. Equal, equally God. In value, dignity, worth, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is under the Father and the Son, submitted. Equal value, he's called our helper. He's not devalued. It's just there has to be authority. And in the church, he's created pastor, elders in the church who are certain, like, in every institution he's created, not because, that, but like men we know, it's not because we're smarter, right? Right, right? Like, guys, we're not even sure if we should shake our head this way or this way. Like, we know we're not smarter. Like, we don't even know which way to go with it. Like, we, we don't. We're not that smart. It's not because we're more gifted. It's not because we're more, like, it's not that at all. It's because God has created order. It says in Ephesians 5, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. I'm just relating to you God's word. I don't care what culture and society says. We're submitted. We're people of God's word. Now, it also says in Ephesians 5 that husbands should love your wives as Christ loved the church. And I would submit to you that is a far taller order. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I would say if, if men, if we actually loved our wives like that, it would be really easy for them to come under our headship and leadership. But we don't. We fail. Miserably, all the time. And what happens is we think, well, if my wife respects me and submits to me, then I will love her. And she thinks, well, if he loves me, then I will. No. It is always, these commands are always given in the middle passive voice. And what that means, it is never, ever, ever, ever the responsibility of the man to make his wife submit. If you said, well, you're supposed to submit to me, you don't get it. Because Jesus would never, he doesn't do that. As Christ loved the church. And the same thing, like for women to demand their husband's love. No, you're called to do what you're called to do, regardless of what your spouse is doing. And that's hard to hear. 
But it's true. We should be kind, submissive, coming under. Husbands, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And I just need to lay that hard on some of you guys. Because I think so often when we, we hear this submit thing, and somehow that thing jumps out at us more than, but husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. Did you hear that part? He gave himself up for her. Changes everything. Changes everything. All of this takes self-control. Women commit to godly behavior. Number three, employees commit to godly conduct. Employees commit to godly conduct. Verse 9, bondservants. Um, so Paul here is talking to slaves or bondservants. In the Roman culture, there would have been over a third of the population would have been slaves. Now, Paul's not condoning slavery. He's not. Some people would read this and say, oh, see, the Bible's terrible. The Bible condones slavery. No, Paul was just talking to the social constructs of the day. That's all. He was a herald of the gospel. He was not someone who was trying to shift the social constructs of the day. That's all. So he just simply speaks to them because in the church, there would have been those who were slaves, masters, bond servants. So in the church today, we are all either employees or employers. So let's read it that way. Employees. Employees are to be submissive to their own employers in everything. Ouch. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Employees commit to godly conduct. Commit to godly conduct. Again, all of this is sound living. Our beliefs affecting how we behave. So an employee, an employee are to be submissive to their own employers. Now, here's what's hard. Sometimes when we work for somebody, we think that we would do it a different way. We think that we know more or that, that they don't understand what I'm dealing with. But I would submit to you also that often an employer is seeing things from a different perspective. And see things from like you don't you don't see the whole picture you don't see all the books but in the end it doesn't matter. See, what he says is you as employees are to be submissive. They're to be well pleasing. Well pleasing that means do your job. Just do your job and do it well. Do your job well. Do it right. You know people say well when you pay me fifteen dollars an hour I'll do you fifteen dollars an hour. No, it's not how it works. I guess $15 an hour isn't that much anymore. But um, you see what I'm saying? Like, do your job. No, no matter what, as a Christian, employees commit to godly conduct and you do that. And he goes, submit to them in everything. Be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. Not pilfering. I mean, like, what is pilfering? It's not stealing. Don't steal from them. This is super simple. If you're clocked in, do your job. Do your job. I think so often, those especially who work at a desk, how often is it easy to just drift off into your own social media account, drift off into searching other things on the web? You're on the clock. How easy, not pilfering, not stealing. Time. Time is money. Like, 
Give them like the time that you're supposed to. And you know, this isn't, I, I think, a problem today. So many people work at home. Are you working at home? Like, are, are you really working? Like doing your job. Like don't pilfer. Uh, you know, I think sometimes we think of things, like some people would say, like don't take things home from the office. Don't take pens and paper. Like, and, and in our minds, we can justify a dime. We would never take $1,000, but we'd take a dime. Do you think in God's eyes it's any different? It's not. But it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. In my mind, I rationalize. It's just a dime. It's just a dime. Do you, but do you see, it's the heart of the matter. So he said, don't pilfer. And so like this is convicting for me. Because as a pastor, someone that I've heard, uh, an older pastor said, you know, that ministry is often where lazy men go to hide. I, I, I'm honest. I, I believe that. I see it. Because it's easy, because no one's really watching over us. Are we doing our job? So it's convicting for me. I don't want to pilfer the church. We shouldn't want to pilfer our employers. Sound living. We must teach it. We must live in a way where our conduct is godly. That brings us to point number four. Christians must be committed to godly living. Why all this? Because it says at the end that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. They may adorn. What does it mean to adorn? To make it look beautiful, to dress it up. We should be committed, men, to godly character, women, to godly behavior, employees to godly conduct. Why? Because those things adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. One of the big indictments against the church and it's somewhat founded as people say, well, these people profess to know Christ, but they don't live like him. Now, one of the things you often say, people say, I'm not going to go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. Well, the reality is it's true. I feel like the greatest hypocrite in this church because I stand up here and proclaim a truth that I haven't mastered in my own life. Every Sunday, I fall short of the glory of God. And so for people to use that as an excuse, well, I'm not going to commit to the church, I'm not going to be a Christian because they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Well, in a sense, we're all hypocrites. We all claim to believe something we don't live perfectly. But we are to be committed to godly living to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior or to be salt of the earth, light of the world. And I think he ends it talking to employees because if you're like, well, where do I do ministry? Your primary place of ministry is right where you work. Right where you work. It's your job. So work your job, interact with your coworkers, interact with your boss, interact with your employees in a way that will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. See? Just where you work. I love having church at the mall. People are like, do you ever want another, you know, church building your own place? I don't know that I ever do. This week, I'm in my little office slash volunteer room slash everything happens in there. Some days tweets me out. I'm in there working and my wife and Lisa were out in the lobby working and her just knock on the gate. And um, some of the ladies who work at the mall and security and as janitors came in because one of their co-workers had became very, very, very ill the day before. And they just wanted somebody to pray for them and pray for him. 
I would never have that opportunity. I've had more opportunities. I've had more opportunities to be the mall pastor just where you are, where you are. Work your job. As your teacher, as your construction worker, as your law enforcement, as your student, as your athlete, adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Godly living. It's the best testimony that we have. And when you fail, be quick to humble yourself and repent. We must live the gospel, allow it to change our lives. But if we say we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it must impact our behavior. It's one of the reasons we take communion every week. Is because if we fear God, we're going to keep short accounts. Because we take communion in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. His body broken, his blood shed for us. We take it to remember the gospel, to stay gospel-centered. But scripture is clear that you can take communion in an unworthy manner. One of the ways we do that is if you're a non-Christian. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we welcome you. We're so glad you're here. There's no judgment. We would just ask if you're not a Christian yet that you wouldn't take communion with us this morning because scripture is clear that you can eat and will eat and drink judgment upon yourself and we don't want that for you. There's no judgment. You're like, well, what should I do with the elements? Just take them, put them in the basket, put them in the trash on the way out. They're just elements of remembrance. There's no judgment. Scriptures also says that Christians can, can, can take communion in an unworthy manner. If you are living in willful, unrepentant sin, and take communion, you can eat and drink judgment upon yourself. We don't want that for you. So I take in communion every week. Remind us, if you fear God, you will deal with the sin in your life. Now, we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God every day. Every day, of every week, of every month, of every year. And when we fall short, we repent. But what I'm talking about this morning is willful, unrepentant sin, where you sin and you know you're sinning and you're willfully doing it. If you're living in that state right now, I would just ask you not take communion this morning. And that this week that you would repent and deal with that and cut that sin off in your life and then come back next week and remember the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's remember that our behavior is supposed to match what we believe. And the night that Jesus was was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples. He said, take this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it as often as you do in remembrance of me. Father, I thank you for your love for us. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, your body broken, your blood shed, that we could be redeemed, forgiven. Father, help us to remember that we're not the church of the perfect, just the, just the redeemed. Every one of us in desperate need 
of your grace and your mercy. I pray that we would go live committed to godly character, to godly behavior, to godly conduct, to holy living. For your glory, for our joy, in Christ's name, amen. Have a great week. Remember, we have a mission right where you're at to fulfill. And above all, put on love. See you next week.